Yeah, I mean, for podcasts, it's a little little different than recording guitar or something like that. You don't really <laughs> you don't really want, you don't want any uh, preamp or mic pre clipping. No, you can uh, you can turn off all of your uh, dynamic distortion and uh, T drives right now from the from the signal. Right, right. I like to run it through, so it's. <laughs> I've got delay going. Is that cool or? We uh, we yeah, we're gonna reamp all this actually. So don't <laughs> give me through like it. a fifteen inch cab. That'd be great. I am super excited. This is this is a big milestone for us right here. I'm not yeah. sure if you know this. This is episode 50, 50 dude. Gearbuds podcast right here. Yeah, I remember you had said in your uh, in your text to me when we were trying to schedule it that it was 50. So I appreciate that uh, I'm the, I'm the one that's uh, you know on here for the 50th. And for all of our listeners who don't already know this man's voice, we have Mr. Mason Marangella, the Rig Doctor, Uncle Mace. Mr. Vertex Effects on Vertex. the line with us. That's right. We're properly socially distanced across the country <laughs> right now. Uh, totally, totally stoked to have you on. Uh, we're going to spend a whole bunch of time digging into Vertex and you and all that fun stuff in a little bit. But we're going to get into some. Uh, we're going to get into some of our usual segments that we have here and start off with the old Symphony of Corrections. Uh, this is just your weekly reminder. Cables are tone tubes. Um, and I should add, actually, uh, Mason, since you're on the line, um, tone tubes are now officially using Bestronics cabling with our tone, with our actual product. So oh, really? um, we've, we've tested everything. We've, we've gone through all the different types of cable out there. I'd settled on a couple others that were pretty good, but after, uh, after a whole bunch of testing and, and just loving the fact that they're, you know, a nearby Chicago company, right. Bestronics is the official cabling supplier of tone tubes so nice stoked on that very cool see uh reminder follow us on instagram facebook at gearbuds podcast subscribe spotify apple podcast blah 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 um another reminder and this is something that i've actually been um, making sure to try to keep updated every day if you go to gearbudspodcast.com slash free dash stuff uh, I've been keeping a running list of all of the sort of free um, plugins, software, yep. resources, tutorials, lessons that all the um, different um, music companies are stepping up and providing right now. So just added a bunch of stuff yesterday. Um, check it out. Some of it's time sensitive. Some of it isn't. But there's a lot of cool stuff out there for you to check out and yeah. make the most of all the time. There's a lot of stuff. I mean, right now. you posted what? Like there's like 20 links up there. And I think there's even a free version of Pro Tools. I mean, that's, you know, it's, a, you know, it's a trial subscription, of course, but like, that's fucking amazing. Yeah. Pro Tools, Logic, Ableton, Reaper. There's a Cubase. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there for you to try right now. If you've uh, been wanting to dabble or if you just wanted to, to fill out your kit. I mean, there's, there's a few things that I'd kind of had my eye on that became free. So I'm really excited about that and a lot of stuff for you to try out. So gearbudspodcast.com. There's links on the site to check that out. Um, I also wanted to quickly note um, something that's pretty cool. A couple things, and Mason, I'm sure you've actually um, been learning about this as well. So um, my former entertainment attorney, uh, Pete Strand, great dude, sent me an email with a couple of resources for musicians and small business owners right now. Um, right now, through the Small uh, Small Business Association, the COVID-19 Relief Fund, there, you can apply. And I know there's a lot of hoops that you've got to jump through and all that kind of stuff. But if you're interested in this sort of thing and you've got a small business that's hurting right now uh, in this industry, there are loans available up to $100,000, which could certainly help a lot to, to keep some folks afloat, as well as the Music Cares COVID-19 Relief. Um, it's a grant up to $1,000 if... 
essentially you kind of have to verify um, that you are an active musician through uh, if you if you have an allmusic.com license. I'll add those links on the that site as well so that you can learn more information there if you don't know already. Um, really cool stuff available for people in in this time of need because a lot of people are hurting right now for sure. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, you know what? We're we're just rolling right through here. I am gonna go to my favorite segment every week, which is Dave's Docs. Yeah, watch the good Dave's Docs uh, over the week. Um, hey, hey, we're the Monkeys. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the famous band from the mid '60s called the Monkeys. Nice uh, man, <laughs> but it was a kind of a random one, man. I gotta I gotta be honest. I heard them on the radio, and I was like, I wonder if they have a documentary, and uh, they sure do. And it was it was done in like '96. Um, interviews with all the bandmates. Uh, basically, they threw that band together. They wanted to be this, you know, U.S. Beatles because um, the Beatles mania was so big that the U.S. is like, we gotta, we gotta have something like this. And I, I would, you know, credit them to being the first boy band ever created. They were put together through an agency. Um, the guys did not know each other, and they could kind of play. They could, you know, they were they were musicians, but they they definitely didn't play on all the studio stuff. Um, it's, it's a really good one to hear. Um, of course, you know, fizzled out pretty quick and all that. They had the show. Um, I don't know. I can't say enough good things about the monkeys. I love their, their music and all that stuff. So I definitely recommend, Hey, Hey, we're the monkeys. Did they, uh, did they write those songs or I'm assuming those, there were songwriters involved in that sort of thing. You know, what's funny, man. They didn't, they didn't really get into it. Uh, they talked about recording it and they talked, I, I would assume they did because they didn't say that they didn't, but they talked more about how, you know, they did not record on the records. It was obviously their vocals and stuff, but uh, you know they, they rarely actually performed live, and um, they were pretty wild, man. I think they started to, towards the late '60s, man. They started getting like the Who and shit like that, and they started like you know really running around on stage, throwing their gear around. I, much respect to the Monkees, man. I mean, they they were doing shit. People kind of look at them as like, oh, it was this goof kind of like show, but they were they were legit musicians for sure. Yeah, it's you know obviously people know some of the some of the popular hits, but I'll say stepping stone or not your stepping dude, stone, whatever the title is. That so song good. fucking rips, man. Fuck yeah, I dude. love that song. Yeah. Uh, sex pistols covered it. So, you know, I mean, it's good enough for them. Damn straight. All right. Well, that was yeah. good. Dave's doc. <laughs> hey, where'd you, you where'd you watch that? Oh, it's on YouTube. So you can just look for it on there. Um, I'm again, sure it's very high quality too, like a solid 240p uh, yeah, resolution rip. There. I mean, yeah, the fun thing about it, like a movie from 1996 was like, I'm not expecting it to be much. So I'm like, yeah, well, the footage is from the 60s and the film was done in the 90s. So what can you really what can you really get out of that? You know, got to love that four three aspect. ratio. Yeah. Oh, too. yeah. It was a big square on my screen. For B- sure. Bust out your CRT and <laughs> throw, right, throw it on dude. the tube television. Nothing but tubes for us over here. Nice, man. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm, you know, I say this every week, but kind of want to watch that. Yeah, you check it out, man. There's nothing to do right now. It's a, it's a fun little. It's only like an hour long too. It's not like a big dragger, you know. Big draggers, sweet man. Good one. Thanks. Uh, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna add my weekly edition of the Riff Library here. Um, so I've been, I've been digging deep into the old, the old vintage, the, the vinyl archives here, listening to a bunch of records I haven't listened to in a while. Was getting into some weird obscure stuff, some real heavy shit, and then I just needed a little bit of a palate cleanser yesterday, and I busted out the old original pressing of Van Halen, 1984. Oh fuck yeah, man, mm. that record, whoo, bro, I, you know. Obviously, it's got some of the biggest hits on there. It's got Panama. It's got Jump. It's got Hot for Teacher, Drop Dead Legs. Like there's some there's some serious rippers on there. A couple things I want to say about it. First of all, album sounds great. Uh, production was insane. You know the yeah. the drums sound incredible. The guitars, of course, are ripping. I've talked at length about how I think 
Alex Van Halen's perhaps the most, or I'm sorry, not Alex Van Halen. Michael Anthony is the most underrated yeah. bassist of the era. Oh, love yeah. his parts, love his vocal harmonies. But what I really want to talk about is how fucking rad the album art is on this record, man. Like, have you actually looked at that beautiful that piece the, of original artwork on the cover? Is that the baby? It's the it's like a it's like a little sort of demon angel baby smoking yeah, a cigarette. The cherub. <laughs> yeah. And it, dude, it's so good. So I I just like I realized I'd kind of always taken it for granted, so I decided to actually look up the artist and it turns out it was a woman named Margaret or not Margaret, Margot Nahas. Sick. And so they somehow the the band had learned of her work and they had actually commissioned her to make some crazy drawing that they came up with with like the four of them covered in chrome with all this like reflection going on. Okay. She's basically like, nah, I don't think I can do that. Right. So then her husband just basically took her portfolio, which I'd assume was literally just a leather-bound portfolio back in the early 80s, and brought it to the band. And they and they saw this picture that she had that she had painted of the the cherub smoking the cigarettes. And they're every one of them was just like, "Yup, that's it." So then <laughs> that was the artwork. And and I guess recently I, I tried. I, I think the URL is dead now, but it turns out that they she had sort of come around to this a few a, a few years ago and decided to start selling actual authorized prints of it that you could oh, cool. buy which i absolutely would have done but it turned I, I can't seem to find it anymore so um if, if anybody has one out there that they're looking to get rid of maybe get in contact yeah with me, that's I'd a hard one to find one. for sure man yeah but you know van halen 1984 it came out in 1983 but 1984 is my birth year which of course makes it the best year oh, so man. another reason <laughs> that i've got to love it um very cool but yeah man, man that's my riff library busting out busting out a little van Van Halen, little uh, little rock and roll. Nice, uh, sweet. Going to go into the future gear segment here. Only one thing that I want to talk about this week, um, and it's actually pretty cool. A company that you may or may not know already called Critter and Guitari. Uh, they're known for making a product called the Organelle, which is it kind of it's sort of if you're familiar with um, like for instance Teenage Engineering's uh, gear that they make, little sort of self-contained synthesizer type units mm-hmm. um, is what the Organelle is. This they've got a new product that they're working on right now, and it's actually up on Kickstarter currently. <clears throat> which you know maybe you can roll your eyes at that a little bit because Kickstarter might not always deliver but I have confidence <laughs> that this will because they have already delivered a product before and it's awesome and this one is called the Eyesy E Y E S Y yeah and it's a video synthesizer so basically they've developed all these super cool algorithms and and visual uh, language things I don't even know how the proper way to say it and you can feed either um just any kind of audio signal into it or uh, MIDI into it and then program it or use their preset programs to then output video and these different sort of animation and sequence animations that are synced to the audio that's putting in it and reactive in real time. You can either output it via HDMI or composite. Um, It's, and, and, and there are other companies that have done stuff like this before that I've seen and, and to sort of varying degrees of success. But this is the first one that I've seen where I thought like, this is a thing that I would actually want to use and that Mm -hmm. I feel it could fit my aesthetic. And not only that, it's, um, sort of uh, uh, customizable enough that I would feel comfortable that I wasn't just sort of getting the same product that everyone else would be getting and and have all the same visuals and the same output and everything. I'm super stoked on it. I haven't, I haven't personally bought it yet. 
but I might because um, right now, for the Kickstarter pricing is two ninety five. Uh, it's going to go up to three ninety five once it's a live product in the world. It's already met its goal. I think it's like well surpassed it. In fact, and there's still something like by the time this comes out, there'll be two weeks left. Um, so if you want to check it out. Go to check it out on Kickstarter, Critter and Guitari IZ. I'm super stoked on it. There's a very good chance I might buy one. Um, and if not, I'm probably going to regret it. I love it. it, man. Yeah, it looks really cool. All right. That's enough about us. It's time to start getting into a little Mason time here. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with what I've, uh, what I've dubbed a couple two-tree randos, which is where we just, uh, we're just going to ask you a couple questions and, uh, and see what you got. How's just that sound, get Mason? Kind of get you warmed up. You know? Okay, I'm ready. All right. Uh, if you could... Again, now, and, and this is sort of irrelevant, uh, or regardless of your own personal talent or abilities, if you yourself could swap places with any band member of any band, past or present, who would it be? Any band member, any band, past or present. Huh. Who? So it's a stumper. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a calculation, you know, like you have to kind of, th- there's so many, there's so many viable choices. Nice. There are. Um, yeah. It's a thinker. Yeah. Because you don't want to kick out your favorite, you know, most influential member of that said band. So, right? So I'm going to be honest. I completely disagree with that. Okay. I think, Interesting. I yeah, think if like, you want to be Jimi Hendrix, like, then just be Jimi Hendrix. What Fuck if it. you were just like the, the ta- you're like the tambourine player in like some famous band? Like some That's what I'm saying, dude. Non-essential yeah. part. Like I played the triangle in <laughs> the Grateful like, Dead or something. Yeah. Um, you know, like the, the cowbell player in Blue Oyster Cult, right? Well, yeah. because I'm He's sort of a, I'm a, such a, a a fan of the of the era where you know pedals really came into into prominence in the in the 1980s. You know, I, I probably would would want to be like a, a non essential member of like one of those bands that was kind of on the forefront of of experimenting with with pedals, at least in the format. Uh, that that I've come to know them, so I think it would be like, you know, I don't know the 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 hired hand percussionists of like, uh, you know, I don't know, Toto or Def Leppard or like yeah. one of these bands, you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the behind the scenes guy that just like came out for like three songs to you know trigger that trigger the uh, the the drum hits, you know, or something like that. <laughs> Dude, I love that. That's such an on-brand answer for yeah. you, too. That's perfect. <laughs> Just because right, I would so want to be there a, watching it, you know. Yeah, I would, I would, the, yep. the evolution of that stuff, like I can hear about it, but uh, uh, I couldn't live Steve Lukather's backup. There you go. Right. All yeah. right. Excellent first answer. I love this. This is going great. Um, number two, childhood celebrity crush. Childhood celebrity crush. Um. There was multiple, so I'm trying to go like, do you want like first one or give me your give me your, the top three? Okay, uh, Jessica Alba was one. Um, oh. Who else? Um, Kira Knightley as well. Bennett like Beckham. Um, that was kind of more of like the 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 sportier. Uh, and I'm trying to think of another one that was. Prominent. Hmm. Oh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, yeah. That was a deep cut. Yeah. Yeah. Nailed it. Yeah. I remember my parent. My parents wouldn't let me see Shakespeare in Love, you know, because there was some nudity in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that was like, what, like 96 maybe or 97? So yeah. I would have been, been like 11 or 12. 
forbidden fruit right there. Yeah. Awesome. Keeping it moving. Uh, do you do an accent or an impression? No. <laughs> not, 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 <laughs> not, not well. Fair um, answer. Yeah. I did not ask if you did one well. I just asked if you did one. No. And I mean, you know, I feel like now I'm almost like frightened to even attempt it because it's, it's, it, <laughs> it can so easily just get, it's such a easy third rail. Uh, to yeah. Get on. Right. <laughs> this is the part where we, we segment that little piece out and we just post that everywhere, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Who's excited for Monday's episode? Check yeah. out this racist impression. <laughs> <laughs> Henry's just trying to bait you, dude. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right, no, that's honest. I, I'm feeling it. It's all good. There's no right, there's no right or wrong answers here. Um, next one, and this actually comes from our pre our uh, the last guest that we had on the podcast, Soren Peterson from Sure Microphones, uh-huh. and he wants to know if you could be on any other podcast, what would it be? Any other podcast? Hmm. Doesn't have to be music or gear or any of that. Yeah, kind of yeah, shit. yeah. Um. You know who I really like? I don't know that we have anything to talk about in, in common, really, but I really appreciate uh, Sam Harris a lot. Yeah, uh, he's great. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's just so well-spoken, man. When I, like, listen to him talk, I'm just like, man, I need to I need to learn how to speak better. <laughs> <You know>? um, <laughs> I don't talk I think to it's you, called man. talk better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what, he, uh, I, I've got I've to admit my ignorance here. Who, who is Sam Harris? Well, I think he, I think he kind of covers a lot of disciplines, but I think it's, he's kind of like a, I think his focus is really on, on philosophy and, and kind of neurology, but not so much in like a, a scientific approach, but more kind of like a, a moralistic approach, you know? And so mm. I think he kind of looks at, at events that are kind of current or, or, uh, you know, kind of uh, of the time and, and, and kind of gives a perspective and then also um, also kind of will bring on guests on occasion. Some of it's more of like a monologue or kind of like his self, his sort of personal opinion on something and others are kind of uh, bringing on guests to either sort of reinforce or use as a sparring partner, you know, not, not in, in, in a, I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but it's sort of like somebody maybe that maybe doesn't hold the exact same values as he does around a certain topic. And they sort of have mm-hmm. a, an intelligent discourse around it. Um, and so I always appreciate listening to that. Now, what I would bring to the table there would be, you know, I, I don't know that we could really could really have a, 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 an intelligent conversation on any on any topic because he's so well educated <laughs> compared to me. Um, but uh, I always listen and, and admire, and I always thought, oh, you know, it'd be, it'd be interesting to to bring a conundrum to him, you know, and and, right. and really have him kind of autopsy it. That'd be cool. Yeah. Dang, well, <clears throat> that sounds like a absolutely a thing I need to check out. That's uh, yeah, Sam Harris. That's pretty show. exciting for me. Yeah, we, well, you have you know you have to catch up on the monkeys first, and then right, you have a lot to do this week. Henry. Yep, it's no. all about priorities. Don't monkey <laughs> around. <laughs> hey, hey, we are them. All right, last question. Uh, and this is going to be for our guest next week. Okay. Uh, what question? Sh- what question would you like us to ask our next guest? I don't get any any preface as to who that is. Nope. No, you do not. Okay. Huh. 
This is always a tough one for guests. I feel like this is yeah. I think I think it's more selfish. This is more of a selfish question, but kind of I think that the the thing I'm always curious about, and I'm presuming that this person is going to you know be somebody that that has their own business in some format, whether it's a manufacturer, whether it's an artist that creates their own music, but. I think it's it's like what are they what is the the if they had to distill their success or or the successes that they've had mm-hmm. into sort of one thing like what what is that x factor for them I'm always really curious about where people find all of all the things that they do what what was sort of the one sort of you know thing that that it all hinged on that that it fell a certain way for them, or they they kind of stacked the deck for themselves in a certain way that allowed them this outcome, you know, of of you know being able to make a career out of whatever it is that they're doing. Wow, like that. yeah, <clears throat> love I like that, that question a That's lot, great. quite a bit. It's, and it's always very interesting to me. And this is a, a relatively new segment. I think we've maybe been doing it for like ten episodes. Yeah, or something, but like, <laughs> it's always very interesting to me to for, to hear what direction someone takes it because it can either be something really thoughtful and yeah. and kind of. Uh, evocative like that or it can be like for instance what's the most embarrassing fart you've ever had like that is, that is ag- ag- shout actually out to been a Mark. question that's uh, cool yeah. <laughs> shout out to base to have Mark Nishar on that one <laughs> That was one of the, uh, that was one of the questions for that the that the sure guy uh, got. <laughs> I think I it, think it might have been. I can't. Actually. I think we were to too embarrassed to maybe ask him. I don't know. I can't remember if we asked him. No. What happened was I had that on deck because he realized how sort of crass that was, and he's like, "I'm going to give you this one, yeah. but I'm also going to give you a couple other." He gave ones us a couple too. B sides, and, and uh, so we might have uh, mentioned the fart. I might, I probably edited it out. Who knows? You know, it's hard to say at this point. But um, that's an awesome one. Thanks for, that, thanks for yeah. Sharing that. Oh, that was really I, good. Yeah, I think I think it would still be you know the fart one. I think is still equally equally viable. I mean, certainly from a listener standpoint, more entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it, it depends on what you go to this podcast for. If you're like a Sam Harris type listener, maybe yeah. not. But if you're I don't know uh, a don't dumb know. people town listener, maybe Good that's what back. you're going for. But maybe you know that's what he needs. You know, that's that's, yeah. that's that that's sort of the pivot that his show kind of needs to finally sort of like break that you know th- that fringe group that's been kind of holding out from subscribing because he just doesn't have enough fart content in all the philosophizing going on. Well, I think now you know what your topic of conversation, once you are a guest on this podcast, (laughs) actually ought to be. Let's get this out of the way, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) What is the worst fart you've ever had? (laughs) On air. (laughs) Live. Let us examine the the societal impact of flatulence in public. (laughs) He would probably have an answer, actually. Yeah, he he probably would. You know, he has this very pragmatic approach to everything. I think he would actually take it seriously. Beautiful. All right, man. We're gonna we're gonna dig into you a little bit deeper here. So okay. the our our listeners probably don't know this. Maybe maybe we've mentioned mm. it. Maybe we haven't. I think we have. We probably but, talked so about this it. is this is actually the second time we're oh, now yeah. sitting down with you here. Uh, the first time happened to be face to face on possibly the noisiest floor that you could I possibly imagine, which is the Nam floor. We were at the uh, Pioneer DJ booth. Was right next to our podcasting booth. So yeah, and it right. seemed like there was like four or five different podcasts that were all going on in parallel, and then there was like a bus that was parked. On, on <laughs> and they gave us they gave us like a room mic. They're like, "Here, record it with this." And we're like, "Okay." 
you know JBL AKG hey, they, shout out they're you know they're still they're still friends but also I, I gave my feedback it was not an ideal podcasting environment and unfortunately the audio just despite Mason actually bringing his own microphone and being super prepared yeah just wasn't quite up to our to our standards so we had to we had to punt this uh, until now but I'm, I'm still super stoked that we get to do it now um, I want to get I want to take it back a little bit with you Mason sure Uncle Mace rig doctor uh, what like what what was your start in music where when did you when did you kind of get bit by the music bug what what did that look like yeah well I, I always took guitar lessons and played guitar as a, as kind of like a, a, a pre-teen and teenager you know through high school and uh, you know I kind of got inspired because I when I was taking guitar lessons uh, in a small town called Katati, California, in, in the in Sonoma County area, uh, there was this guy that would make that was a hi-fi repair shop that was in this studio where I would take guitar lessons, and uh, he would kind of be tinkering on stuff and, and building stuff. And this this individual was Bill Crenard, the founder of two rock amplification at this time. Oh, wow. He was wow. just, he was just a hi-fi repair shop. Didn't even make tube amps. Oh, cool. So, um, sounds like a, a little bit like Leo Fender's start. Yeah. And yeah. so I, you know, that we'd wait outside on this bench and his studio is this really small, probably 10 by 10 studio. and just had a sliding glass door. It was in this place called zone music. And, uh, he, he had a sliding glass door. And so you could kind of see him soldering stuff and, in, in uh, you know, doing his thing. And I'd always kind of look in there and kind of see what he was doing. And I was kind of curious. And uh, when he first started making his amps, I was probably, I don't know, early high school. So maybe around 2000 or so, maybe 2000, early 2000s. And uh, he came out with a couple of amps. They all said K&M analog designs on them. Didn't even say two rock yet. And they had all these knobs and stuff like that. And I just thought it's really cool the thing he was doing, and in parallel with that, this was kind of when the big pedal modding craze really took off. So like the Robert Keeley stuff, uh, sure. the Analog Man stuff. And, you know, there was guys on the internet that would offer kits, and uh, there was also forums and stuff like that where people would post schematics of what they thought was in the Robert Keeley mods or what they had disassembled as the Robert Keeley mods. You know, and I was kind of at the point where I was just about to start college, and I thought, hey, you know, like... I want to learn about this stuff. And I had gotten accepted uh, to go to a, uh, a two-year college. I didn't get into any four-year colleges. And so I thought, oh, you know what, I'll learn how to do some of this this, uh, this stuff, you know, in, in community college. And uh, so I took some, some courses and kind of learning the basics, you know, and uh, Ohm's Law and things like that. And, and, and I thought actually that I wanted to do more amplifiers because I had seen Bill and he kind of like inspired me. Um, and the problem was, though, that uh, w I would put these ads up on Craigslist because I would want to like try to get as much volume of experience as I could. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I'd say, I'll mod or repair your amp, your tube amp for free. You pay for the parts. And I started cool. getting all these people that were, you know, contacting me about, you know, fixing their amps and stuff like that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I knew some theoretical information. I didn't have a lot of practical experience. Um, 
and luckily I didn't have any real like catastrophes or anything like that. You know, if I like screwed something up and, uh, but the problem was, you, is, you is, knew to just discharge the caps. Yeah. <laughs> well, in the beginning, you know, I mean, I, I knew some of this stuff, but you know, sometimes you don't know where, where everything's located on the amp. You know, you, 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 you learn quickly that you really need to look at your schematic first. And for a lot of the stuff that I was getting at that time, which is like vintage, you know, fenders or like seventies era fenders, which weren't really that popular, um, at that point that, that, uh, you know, that there was always schematics available for those and you would want to definitely look at those before you start getting into stuff. And, and, you know, then sure. there, there became sort of some automaticity to that as I did more of them. But when I had finished that school, the two year college, I had applied to go to Berkeley, the, the West coast, Berkeley, the university of California, Berkeley. And I thought, Hey, I really want to do engineering type stuff. But when I got in, I realized that there was really no, pathway to doing analog engineering. So I immediately dropped that that perspective major and went to the counselor and said, hey, like, there's no way I'm going to be able to, you know, do the the computer science stuff, which is what their engineering program was. You know, what what can I transfer to easily with the credits that I have? And she's like, oh, you should do sociology. You know, you, you, you can just you can just continue. You don't have to, you know, take any extra classes or anything like that. Just continue. Yeah. And so I transferred to that. I wasn't doing engineering as a college major, but I continued doing this, um, you know, these ads on Craigslist. The problem was is the dormitory that I was living in would not allow me to have that many amplifiers in my room at once because it was a fire hazard. <laughs> of course. And then we got all these complaints, you know, from, from other students that couldn't open the door. And there was weird people coming over from Craigslist in the middle of the night, like <laughs> all these really their old guys coming in with big yeah. heavy boxes. Yeah. They have so, to check in downstairs, right? So I, I, so I said, okay, well, you know, a lot of the stuff I learned on amps is like, you know, definitely transferable to pedals. You know, like I said, that that kind of wave of boutique kind of faux boutique style, you know, where you were taking an existing pedal like a Boss or an Ibanez, and then you were sending it to these guys that would kind of boutique eyes the the pedals like Robert Keeley and Analog Man. So I basically just put it, changed the ad and said, I'll mod your, you know, your Tube Screamer or your DS1 or your whatever to the Keeley mod or the Analog Man mod. You know, you provide the pedals all, all you know, you provide the pedals and the, and the parts and, and uh, I'll do the mod for free. So I started nice. doing that for, for probably another six months and then eventually started charging for it, you know, like really basic, like 30 bucks or something like that. Sure. Yeah. You know, something really cheap. You're just trying to build up a name at the time, you know, and trying to build I was, up your skills. I was just trying to build the skill set, you know, and, yeah. but the, it taught me a lot because having some experience with amplifiers, like definitely taught you some things, you know, and although I wouldn't say I was a great amplifier technician by any means, especially at that time, it did teach me a lot and it taught me, uh, it gave me a good foundation to start going into pedals because pedals are like way lower risk. You don't have any real issues with getting shocked, you know, yep. and, the, and the overhead's low, you know, so if you ended up burning something up or blowing up a cap, like all that stuff is pretty much replaceable, sure. you know, and so it gave me a lot of experience in doing that and, you know, I, I made a living from doing that and doing, you know, uh, guitar uh, wedding gigs. And I think I worked at like bakery as well and going to college and I did all that. And I made like a pretty decent living for a college student at that time. This is in like 2005, six, uh, seven. Um, graduated from college in 2007, terrible time to try to get a job. And so I continued doing this stuff on the side, but I, I got, you know, a, a full-time job uh, you know, when I got out of school teaching elementary school, I joined this this program through AmeriCorps that would place 
you know, recently graduated college students into low-income schools, and I was a teacher for several years in Richmond, California, and then in Oakland, California, as I was doing this in parallel. And I also started doing pedalboard rigs as well mm-hmm. as doing these repairs. And so I was doing, on summers, I would go on, you know, because I'd have the summer off as a teacher, I would go on these tours and stuff like that with Bay Area bands, right, to prep their tours so that they could go uh, on tour and, you know, make their racks and make their pedal boards. And I learned a lot of stuff about kind of making my own products at that point, because a lot of them would have these really sort of odd or unusual questions or customizations that they would want. I started working with a lot of the LA studio guys at that point, like Robin Ford, Michael Landau, uh, Michael Thompson, um, a lot of guys in Nashville. Were you already, <clears throat> did you, had you already sort of branded as Vertex at this point, or were you still just kind of Mason Marangella doing your thing? I don't think I branded as Vertex until maybe 2009. So there's like a two year period where it was just like this sole proprietorship, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the and only. Where did that name come from? It, 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 there was no, I have no cool story about this. It just sounded, <laughs> it just sounded cool to me. And, you know, uh, cause I remember that, that, um, when I was, so at this time I had, as I told you, I'd become a teacher and, uh, and I had gotten a, this kind of like emergency teaching credential because teachers was so sparse in a lot of these schools. And I remember that I had to learn all this geometry because I had this, uh, this interim teaching credential. And then I actually had a test to get an actual teaching credential. And so I had to learn sort of all this math equivalency up to a certain grade level. And so I remember I was learning about vertices and all this stuff. And, and, uh, and, you know, and so I thought, oh, like, you know, I'd, I'd sort of been inundated because I was going about to take the math portion of this exam, you know, at, at some, you know, I don't know, some place on, on a school campus where they were hosting, you know, these, these uh, tests that teachers would take to get their credentials cleared. And I just thought, oh, that sounds like a cool name. I think I'll just call it that, you know. And nice. I, I didn't really have much expectation, you know, of like how long this would go on. Like I didn't know, you know, if this would ever materialize into a, a full-time job. I just knew that, you know, I, I wanted to have certain luxuries like health insurance and a steady paycheck. And the economy was so bad that being able to to make a living modding guitar player or guitar pedals was unrealistic at that particular time for me. Sure. Um, but I did that. For, I did that in parallel with being a teacher for for five years. In the last two of those years, I was doing my own guitar pedals, pedal boards, and being a teacher all at the same time, full time. So I would like go to you know be a teacher from seven to three. I'd come home and I would work on rigs um, from you know maybe four o'clock until eight or nine o'clock at night, and I would do that, and then all weekend. And, uh, you know, my wife had kind of just said at at a certain point, she's like, hey, you know, like you're making the same living you would as a teacher, you know, or better doing this thing. Um, So I I think you should, you know, let this thing go, you know, let the teaching thing go and just try it. You know, we didn't we had very little, uh, you know, expense in our in our lives, you know, no real overhead. So no family or kids or anything like that. So it was a really sort of low risk time to make that transition. And if it didn't work, I could always go and, and, you know, I had a teaching credential. So I could go and and be a teacher again if I needed to. Um, And uh, 
you know, it just, it, it, it worked out. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, that, that's gotta be, I think there's, there's always this fork in the road that we tend to, we all sort of reach at a certain point with these types of things where it's like, all right, well, am, am I going to go all in or am I not? And so what, was it really just your wife's encouragement? Was there, was there, was there anything else sort of going on that other, I mean, maybe it was really was the economy. Like what was it that kind of pushed you into actually believing in yourself and deciding to make this your full-time thing? Well, I, you know, I, I I kind of been in this place where you know I couldn't take on the amount of work that I that I wanted to because you know I had a, another full time job that I was doing at the same time, and I don't know that it was you know I feel that I was fortunate in that like you know I had the cushion to be able to choose choose the the you know taking that leap without you know, any significant uh, risk as far as, you know, like if it didn't work out, you know, I'd already spent several years really building up uh, a clientele. And at that point, I was already working with a lot of the big LA guys and stuff like that. And I would have to just turn down projects because I just wouldn't be able to do it. And so I, I kind of knew that I had uh, enough to at least be able to replicate the income that I was getting. And because I was then married at that point, you know, I would still get whatever the healthcare benefits were from my wife. So it was like, there was really not a lot of, of risk that it wouldn't work out, you know, and, and as we might mm-hmm. talk about later, you know, the, the place where, where I screwed up in my business was really in my own doing. It wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with, you know, the, the trajectory, uh, and the way that, you know, I decided to, you know, when I decided to leave. No, I honestly, yeah. I truly <clears throat> appreciate you even you having the, the balls to bring that up. And, mm-hmm. and that's, and I want to say right here, like I've had the opportunity to hang out with you a handful of times now, and I know you to be an intelligent dude and an honest guy, and you've been through a lot of shit and, and some of that's warranted and maybe some of it isn't. So I also feel like this is a good opportunity maybe just to kind of clear the air a little bit on that. I know you've had, uh, you've had this conversation before and you and I have talked about it in the past. So, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to belabor it too much, but obviously for the, anybody who, who doesn't know already that's, that's listening, there has been a little bit of controversy in your past. And, and I think it's an interesting story to tell. So I would love to kind of hear your perspective on what happened there and, and kind of, and, and maybe, maybe how you've learned from that and what you've been able to take from that and apply into your still successful career moving through that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and in, I, I think that this the the product that that I made, uh, or that I should say I I was selling, that uh, that was very con- that became very controversial. It all started around 2012 or so, and at that at 2012 I would have been I think like 26 or 27, um, and I just started working with the studio musician in LA named Michael Landau. And, and I think amongst inside guitar players, he's always kind of a, a big guy. He played on, you know, most of the records that, that all of us know and, and, yeah. and love from the eighties and nineties. And, you know, he, he had sent me this, this group of wah pedals and it said, Hey, like I, I, you know, there's things I like about this one, but I, I, I don't have it in this one. And there's the things I like about this other wall that I can't find in this one. And, you know, can you do some mods to these things and, you know, s- see what happens? One of the pedals that he sent me and the one that I liked best of all of them was this one made by BBE, Barkus Berry, called the Benoit. And it was basically kind of a, 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 a replication of a, of a, you know, 60s era Vox wah, you know. 
And uh, so I did these mods for him on it and, and, you know, changed the potentiometer to kind of more of a vintage style, you know, S taper pot and, uh, and did a few little uh, things to the aesthetics because it, it just looked silly the way that it came. Like it didn't look like it had all the, the, the castings of a vintage wall, but like the, mm -hmm. the look of it was wrong, you know? And so I did some things to, to, to change the look of it and stuff like that. And I sent him back these, these several walls that I modded, one of which was this Barkisberry one. So he took it to the baked potato, played some gigs. I posted some photos of these walls that I was working on for him. And all these people started emailing me and saying, oh, you know, I heard Michael at the, at the baked potato or I heard him at the spud, you know, which is like the nickname that people use for the baked mm -hmm. potato. Uh, or I saw it on the gear page or I saw it on, you know, the huge racks, which was this kind of like rack, uh, you know, oriented, uh, you know, forum uh, that no longer exists. But people wanted this walk because they had either seen or, or saw me write about it. And they said, hey, I want this this thing. And so I was like, oh, man, like this is this is crazy that people even want this thing, you know. And, yeah. you know, I didn't have a lot of time on my plate. I was working, you know, building rigs for all these guys. And I was like, man, I don't really want to do this. Like, what should I charge for this? It's actually going to make it worth it for me to even do this, you know, because I was buying the, the, well, at that time I wasn't even buying the, the was, uh, at all. Like they were sent to me from, from, from Michael. Um, mm -hmm. but I, I contacted, uh, and I said, Hey, I'm interested in buying these was as a dealer. Can I buy them from you guys? I'm going to be, you know, modifying them and doing these things. And they set me up with one of their, you know, salespeople and, and uh, they started selling them to me, you know, at around maybe, I don't know, with shipping, maybe like $90 a unit instead of like $120 a unit or something like that. Mm -hmm. It was some, somewhere around there. I think that their published price was maybe like 79 or 85 And then once you factored in shipping, because WAS are pretty heavy, um, it was somewhere around you know, that, that range, 80, 85, $90. And, uh, and then I would, I, I would have these custom bottom plates made, you know, that were, you know, really heavy duty and not kind of like the flimsy ones that, that would come with most was and had badges made for the fronts and had new treads made for the tops and stuff like that. And, and basically just performed the thing I did for Michael Landau. I would change the potentiometer later nice. on. We realized that, you know, it didn't sound the same unless you had, your transistor gains matched in a range. So we would measure those uh, to make sure that they were in this range. And if they weren't, you know, then we would change them so that they would match. And maybe that would only occur on 25% of the ones that we got. But, you know, in the, on those occasions, we would change. And I actually found a contract manufacturer nearby that was willing to, to do all these for me so I could continue to build my pedal boards at the same time and not really have any, any, uh, slowdown in business at that point. I was also, sure. and, and to be clear, that part of it, that is not uncommon for many builders to have oh, contractors yeah, build things for them. No, no, that, that part's not, not un, un, uncommon. I think the, and I should also mention at the same time, we had already had multiple other pedals that had already come out in, in, in parallel with it. So we were doing a signature chorus for Michael Landau, which is a modified yep. Arion chorus. Um, that we were doing with him. We were also doing uh, modded volume pedals, you know, so taking kind of like the Boss FE500 platforms and then kind of simplifying the circuitry and removing stuff. And then kind of at the tail end of, of the wah sort of manufacturing era, I released the Vertex Boost, which is still around today, and uh, a, a signature version of the Vertex Boost for Michael Landau called the Landau Boost. And then I was also doing 
some cables, which kind of got r- into the wah controversy as well, which were uh, Belden 9778 cables that was being made by the same contract manufacturer that was that was building the WAS, where they were buying that in bulk, and then we would sheath them in kind of like a gray nylon sleeving, and then you know have like customized like heat shrink that would go over the ends and stuff like that, and would mark one side guitar and one side amp, um, and uh, so so anyway, I think that. The, the main thing that, that I think people should understand about the, the wah is, is I think that the, or the biggest thing I think it's misunderstood is, is the intent. And, you know, obviously it's, it's debatable that no, nobody will, can know what I was thinking except me, you know, but I will tell it, you know, as, as factually as I can, which is, you know, I had no intent of ever selling a $350 wah pedal. <laughs> I, had pri- I had priced it as such because I didn't want to do them and I knew that it was risky and I thought, well, how can I price it this way? And few people want to buy it. And it had the reverse effect that everybody wanted it. And I remember that Pete Thorne had said, hey, I want to do a demo of it. It looks really cool. And he did a demo of it and it just like upped the ante like of the number of people that wanted it. And like Pete Thorne ended up getting two of them, you know, and he had like one for each board or something like that. I, I can't remember the exact reason why he had two, but he had two of them. And I think he did a demo on two of them. And um, and it just like, it just changed the game for that. Everybody wanted that pedal. And, and I had been designing another wall that was going to just kind of, you know, be like a vintage Vox wah, but, you know, make some improvements on what I thought, you know, the, the BBE one was. And, you know, I just could never complete it because it was selling so well, you know, comparatively to, to its price point. And, uh, and during any of this time, I just want to be clear, was, was there ever, you know, was there ever any sort of, did you ever say this isn't a BBE or anything no, like that? No, I didn't. And that, and that was the biggest problem is that I didn't right. give any clear representation of where I was getting it. Sure. And all of the marketing made it sound as though it was sort of like a, a product just like our boost that was made in-house or anything right. like that. And there was no distinction that it was being modified. Like on our boss volume pedals, we said they were modified. On the Landau Chorus, we said that was modified. Um but on this, I didn't say anything. But it, you know, I think also because it had predated all those products, that uh, you know, I, I, I didn't want to correct any of the inform, any of the misinformation that had been propagated up until that time, because I was afraid of the consequence of that. You know, stupidly, I was afraid of the, the consequence of that. Sure. Um, so by 2014, it'd been out for about two years. I had sold about 350 units of these. And uh, so we're it, not talking about thousands of pedals or here or anything like that. No, that no. In, in in, I mean, it's still completely out of integrity, and and I fully own that. Um, I think that the numbers were were certainly conflated. I, I just think that people knew that, and this kind of stuff was happening a lot at that particular moment in time too, on a lot of um, gear forms. Not so much that sure. partic- this particular thing, but a lot of like guys would take deposits on stuff and they would get really behind and then they wouldn't be delivering products and then people's yeah, money would disappear. I've seen that with like custom guitar makers and, and stuff like that too. Sure. And so some of this, that story sort of got conflated, at least in the beginning, that those two things were like the same. Like people had bought this wall and not only was it like this, this uh, you know, product that wasn't what, what, they, what I said it was, it was also right. like they 
you know, their their money was stolen and, and they never got it or something. What was the sort what was the sort of tipping point? Kinda what how did that evolve yeah, into so, you getting called out? Yeah, so I think the tipping point was around that summer of twenty fourteen, there was one guy that that had taken it apart and said, Hey, you know, this really looks a whole lot internally like this other wall that I have that's made by Barkisberry. What can you tell me about it? And and, you know, I kind of called him and reassured him that, you know, that there was that that it wasn't the same thing and that and that there was these differences. And I didn't, you know, say that it actually was coming from Barkisberry and I was changing these things. I just kind of gave him a generalized sort of, you know, don't worry about it. It's 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 you know, it's good and you're gonna be okay and this pedal's okay, you know, that sort of thing. And 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 I could tell that he wasn't sold on my answer. Uh mm-hmm. You know, but I also was didn't have the courage to confront it at that point, um, and so I kind of let that go. And then I, some of the other people that he was friendly with on on the gear page started doing the same to their pedals because they, I think, maybe potentially, and I don't know this, had maybe all kind of bought it off of one another's recommendations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and so then they started posting pictures and buying, you know, the original Barkisberry one and then kind of putting them side by side. And although we would put a kind of like a rubberized epoxy over sections of the circuit, uh, you know, where the kind of the main body of the circuit board of the wall was, uh, you know, you could see that there was, you know, some some similarities and markings and where there was like Loctite on screws and stuff like that, that that was pretty close. And uh, in my first instinct was to, you know, just ignore it and deny it. And it sort of became to the point where it was insurmountably, you know, the, the evidence was insurmountable. There was no way that you would be able to talk about this product without having to fa- confront the reality that, that, that this was the, this was what it was. And, and there were some things that kind of got me there is, it, 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 you know, to, to really face the, the consequence of it. And, and, and some of it was phone calls of people that, that I, that I trusted and that I thought were, were pretty uh, even keeled and pragmatic about it. And, and were really like, Hey man, like, I think you need to do the right thing here. Like, this is pretty obvious and evident and you know you need to you need to you need to fix this to to the degree that you can and and i think that those some of those conversations put pushed me over the edge to the point where you know i i i did i did know that i had done wrong and i did know that i was responsible for this but i was sort of struggling and in, in in trying to be trying to calculate in my head how i could do it without you know incurring any damage and and there was a point that i realized that it was it was likely that that you know, I would go bankrupt giving these refunds, which which sure. was the right thing to do, and then mm-hmm. I needed to I needed to be okay with that and make peace with the idea that that I would never be in business again. And so, you know, after a couple of months, again, this probably started somewhere around Nam, which was like mid to late January at this point, or mid to late sorry July at this point, and then in September, you know, the first week of September, I kind of wrote this extensive uh, posting on all of the the forums that I was kind of a part of and. And just kind of went down the 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 litany of things that you know people had said, and were kind of the the accusations around not only the WA product but other products, and and so I kind of just went down the list and said, hey, this is what's true. This is what's true about my background. This is what's true about these products. And you know, I just went through each product and said, like, here's the access wall. This is what it really is. Right. This is what we were doing. You were transparent about it. You know. 
Well, to you know, not everybody agreed with with the the level of transparency, but you know, I try to lay it out as as factually as I could, and then there's mm-hmm. different interpretations, obviously, depending on who you talk to, of, of whether that was transparent enough or I went far enough to to detail these things. Okay. And, and sort and, of, so obviously, I mean, let's be clear here. Like you fucked up. I think we all understand that. Everybody agrees that you made a mistake. What 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 was your approach to trying to sort of um, come to to make that right with the people? Was it just straight up refunds? Like how did yeah, how did you approach yeah. that part so, of it? So 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 the you know the the conclusion of the of that posting was just saying you know and and you know I'm going to be responsible in, in resolving this for you in this way. I will if you want to keep the product, I will give you back the difference between what you paid and the the cost of the Barkus Berry version with which it was based. Mm-hmm. Or if you want to return it for a full refund, you can do so. Or if you want to exchange it for another one of our products that is not in question in terms of its validity, uh, we can exchange it for you and then give you a, a cash refund for whatever the difference is, if there's any differing amounts. And, uh, you know, and, and right away, you know, most people that, that uh, own that product you know, we requested, you know, one of those, uh, one of those, uh, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? Restitution options. Right. Mm-hmm. And it took about a year to get through it all, you know, cause, uh, cause at that point, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't earning very much income anymore. And a lot of the, you know, artists and things like that, that we were working with were, wanted to maintain their distance, understandably, um, I don't think that they wanted to get dragged in with it. And uh, yeah, it was it was really, it was a really tough, it probably took about, yeah, I'd say a year to pay the majority of the refunds, probably a, a year and a half to really get through them all. And then I could start sort of rebuilding from there. But I, I didn't have uh, any real expectation that, that I would survive it. I, my, my intent was, is that I had done a lot of damage and the degree to which I could make people whole and complete, at least financially, um, that that I was going to do that, or or kind of you know dissolve in trying to do that uh, as a company. People and, were never um, they were never unhappy about the actual sound of it, though. I mean, the pedal functioned. I no, I know, not that I was aware of. I never got any sonic complaints. I think it was really more about it was really more about the integrity and I think a lot of people felt duped in understandably that they, that they got something that they had paid this premium price for that, you know, they could have had with a few less changes, you know, I mean, we, we were changing stuff and I think that there, there is, there's some, some misunderstanding about what, what was exactly being changed. Cause I think some people just feel like we just bought the, the was and just put them in another box and there was, right. You know, I think the, my cost on it from the contract manufacturer when I moved to that model was around maybe a hundred and sixty dollars or so, and mm-hmm. it, as the cost, you know, and so I right. basically so just applied, you, to, yeah. a, you know, a model of of how I would upcharge for the cost of a product being one hundred sixty dollars, and then cutting in a dealer at thirty or thirty five percent and stuff like that. Sure, but but. Um, you know, obviously, in the end, it ended up costing a lot more than that because the the you know when you're giving people refunds, especially who are from overseas, you know you're refunding them in you know you you sold it to a dealer at thirty percent less, and you're refunding them at full value plus whatever the exchange rates and taxes were that they paid on those items, and 
getting it back from, you know, Sweden or Norway or Japan or whatever it is. So, uh, you, I mean, you had this mea culpa, you, you did everything you could to make it right. Like, uh, other than the obvious, you know, just like, don't do that again. What do you, like, what did you, what did you kind of take from that? What did, how did you, how did, what did you do to kind of rebound and keep your business afloat and, and, and thrive to the point where now you're obviously doing really well and, and killing it on the internet and selling pedals and stuff? Like what, what did you sort of take from that and apply to your business that you have today? The, the main thing is that you have to understand that as any person in business that you're going to screw up at one point or the other. And it's not necessarily going to be anything on the scale of, of, of what I did or, or, or even necessarily an integrity thing. Um, it, it, could be, it could be smaller variations of, uh, or microcosms of, of the event that, that, uh, that I kind of put on myself by not, uh, not, not being honest about what I had. So the thing that I, that I implement in, in everything that I do is really about how do I be, you know, how do I be transparent and how do I, you know, take each subsequent action with as much uh, honesty and integrity as I can without any compromise to that. Because I think that, you know, a lot of people looked at this or at least looked at me as a result of what I did as some sort of pathology. And, sure. you know, this really wasn't something that that uh, was a part of my character, at least as far as like trying to extract money from people without them knowing or, you know, right. some some sort of pathology in in that degree. But I think it's certainly the a, a character defect that people remember. Many of them remember when they think or hear my yeah. name, and so there's they're sort of prone to action on a certain thing. And in you know, I, I all I can be responsible for is how I treated and resolved the issue with the people that were impacted. Those 350 people, and I did that. <laughs> you know, I did that completely. I did exactly what they asked me to do, and whatever the term was, you know, of, of all the options that I gave, I honored that. And a lot of those people are are actually still my customers because I believe that they were genuinely surprised that I did what I said I was going to do. As you know, it I should said, be, man. I mean, I think you have a, a quality product, so if you make good on you know what people think is wrong then there's no reason they should leave you for someone else you know well and it, and it took some time for some of them you know it took a couple of years and i didn't make any new products i mean i honestly i didn't have any income to make any products for mm -hmm. for two years after that because every every dollar that i would get in you know other than just sort of paying to keep the lights on um it was going to to provide refunds i didn't i didn't pay myself a salary for for two years you know, to, to allow this to, you know, wow. and, that, and I'm not saying that as a, as a, as a, a thing to, to draw sympathy, that this is just sure. sort of the reality of the situation. And, and there was the commitment that I had made to, to resolve this with, with people that were sold this product without giving the full, uh, the full information about what it was. And, and, uh, you know, I think that that is the only reason why we, we survived it was because, I, I did what I said I was going to do. That was yeah, it. totally. I just want to kind of put a little bow on that because I truly appreciate your candor and all this. And, yeah, man. and to me, it, it feels like it's necessary for sure. But a lot of people could have, like you said, just kind of folded up and, and gone home and, and you fought through this. So now today, obviously, you're located in the Bay Area. Um, like the, the pedals that you sell right now 
are those circuits all designed by you and, and where are those made? Yeah, so it's a combination uh, of, of people for this stuff. And everything – so I guess the first part of the question is, am I, am I designing all the circuits? I am designing usually the baseline of what – kind of how it starts all. Like breadboard and idea, I'll get the idea down uh, sure. and kind of what we want the sound to be, you know, whether it's a Dumble thing or Marshall thing or whatever it is. And then I, I immediately take it to a PC board designer that does most has done most of our stuff since the boost. So since maybe 2014 has done pretty much every new product that we've put out. And he essentially synthesizes what I've done in a breadboard format and lays it out in such a way for surface mount, you know, because everything that we make is surface mount, meaning that it's it's all on one side of the circuit board. It is, you know, kind of really tiny components. And, and the main mm-hmm. reason for us is that the through-hole stuff, the, the way that the, a lot of the older pedals were made, like that stuff is really not going to be available to the majority of pedal companies in five years, maybe even less. Mm-hmm. And so if, if those who are not adapting to this format, even whether you feel philosophically that it's inferior, although I don't believe that to be true, um, they're they're going to have to eventually redesign their entire product line, and it's going to be a really hard uh, it's going to be really hard economically for pedal companies to do that. So what I do is I have my reference point, I have them rebuild it in surface mount, uh, lay out the PC board, and then we start comparing them, seeing okay, do we are we able to bridge what we know what we like about this one that's all through hole components that you know, maybe what some people would call, you know, at least at this point, semi-hand-wired versus the circuit board version, make any sort of revisions that we need, and then that will go to our contract manufacturing facility, which is located in L.A. So everything is made in L.A. I personally live in Oakland, in the Bay Area, but everything is made in L.A., and our showroom is also down in L.A. Nice. Excellent. Totally clears it up. All right, let's let's um, let's talk about some of those pedals. I think the most recent release is the Steel String Mark II, um, which I've I've been able to spend a little bit of time with. Wanna wanna tell us a little bit about that and kind of what that pedal's all about and yeah. what's maybe a little bit different from the the, the Mark One version? Sure. Yeah. So the Steel String, you know, is, is based on the Dumble Steel String Singer. So that's the the kind of the less known Dumble amplifier. Most people, when they hear Dumble, they typically associate that with Overdrive Special, which is kind of more the Robin Ford. Mm-hmm. Larry Carlton, Carlos Santana thing. The steel string singer was is originally made as as a as a pedal steel or lap steel uh, amplifier for guys like David Lindley. However, it got used by Stevie Ray Vaughan uh, when he was recording with David Bowie on the Let's Dance album and, and borrowed oh. one from Jackson Brown. Is that right? It, I did not know that. Yeah, so Jackson Brown, you know, obviously we had David Lindley as one of his band members, you know, who played, you know, all the all the pedal steel uh, and lap steel stuff on the on all of his albums, you know, like Running on Empty and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. um, so so he used that amplifier and and at that point, you know, was was aware of Dumbles, although I think Stevie Ray primarily used Fenders at least up and through the the mid '80s or so until he started getting using the steel string singer, but the steel string singer kind of became this guitar amplifier uh, in terms of its popularity, even though it wasn't initially designed as that. It was kind of this really compressed, fat, clean, 
with just a little bit of hair on it where it would stay clean, but it still had this dirt on the note mysteriously. And so the subtext of steel string our pedal is clean drive because it still has like a little bit of this grit to it, but it's still clean at the same time. It never really fully turns over like an overdrive would. And uh, so the idea was is just to find somebody that had the amplifier so we could start to design a pedal that would emulate what that amp did through the common clean amp platforms, the Hot Rod DeVille's, the Fender Deluxe's, stuff like that. So one of my clients uh, had the very first steel string singer ever made. And Stevie Ray Vaughan had the second steel string singer ever made. They are the same amp. One is a head, which the one that Stevie Ray has. The other one that my client has is a combo. And so he allowed us to use that as the reference point in voicing this pedal through a, you know, a, a newer sort of Fender style amp so that we could approximate what it did. Now, the confusion that I think some people have on this is that it's somehow a Dumble preamp that's like part for part the same. It is not, if you looked at our schematic, there would be no similarity whatsoever to a Dumble amplifier. And the reason is, is that anybody who's making a pedal that they are basing on a, a tube amp preamp and it's operating at nine volts like most pedals are, there's no way that it can really get there because the, you just don't have the voltage necessary to recreate what a tube amp does. I have found that you can get much closer if you are using sort of the sonic reference point to get there instead of just trying to rebuild a preamp of a Marshall and put it in a box. Like it just can't, right. those nice. components can't work, even if it's using 12AX7s and stuff like that, um, to get there because unless you have it, powered uh, from a wall outlet or something like that, which is just not practical for uh, the type of sales that we are trying to get, which is thousands of pedals a year. Um, yeah. You know, not-, not not to mention, I think a lot of people don't like that you hear this, this, and I think it's kind of a big trend right now, this whole preamp in a box thing. And I get it to an extent, but I think a lot of people get that. And then, and then what's the first thing you do? You plug that right into another preamp. Sure. Like, what? That's that, that's not how that's, uh, yes, sure. If your amp has an effects loop, you can run right into the power amp or you can do a couple different ways. And those are, those are viable. And, and some people use that really well, but this whole thing of like a preamp in a box, well, it's like, well, really it's, it's, it's this funnel that's happening and you're, and then you're still feeding that right into another another step in your gain staging and it's still going to be completely affected by the preamp that you're plugging into anyways so yeah. it makes more sense to me to approach it more from the sort of uh i guess i guess it's sort of gain slash eq yeah it, it's it's better i think it's better if you understand it is it's just going to be a treatment that you're going to do to whatever preamp it's going to be going into you know because right. most people are not going to do what you're saying where they go into the return of an effects loop and then use the pedal itself as a, as a power amp most people prefer the, the coloring of their tube preamps in their amplifiers themselves, you know. Um, so we, we designed it with that intent, and it was basically like, how do we kind of get it through, you know, Hot Rod DeVille's, Hot Rod Deluxe, Fender Deluxe Reverb, to really emulate what the Dumble Steel String Singer does. And we just went back and forth with a bunch of different circuit types, you know, kind of the common circuit types that you would, you would think of for sort of clean, compressed kind of boosts. And then we would put these insert points in the in the in the breadboard that I kind of prototyped of like okay what happens if we put the gain stage before the EQ okay what happens now if we insert this after the EQ what happens if we put more gain on the input stage all right no that didn't sound good now let's try it on the output stage so basically mm -hmm. I'm building like these four or five different circuit archetypes that I think are going to kind of approximate the range kind of just based on really common stuff that has been out there for 30 or 40 years. And then I just build different 
kind of insert points where I can move where the EQ section is, or I can move where the gain stages are, or I can, uh, you know, put, you know, uh, the tone stack in the feedback loop or, you know, stuff like that. So you can really start to see what what's taking shape that most aligns with the actual amp itself. And then I kind of narrow it down to maybe one or two circuits and then I send it to my buddy Zach, you know, who puts him into a, a surface mount PC board. And then we come back and we reevaluate. Did we get there? Which one's closer? You know, what do we need to tweak? You know, and and so, you know, I, I say that the steel string clean drive and the MK2, which is the newest version of it, is the closest approximation that you can get to that amplifier in a pedal format. And and to my knowledge, we're the only pedal company that actually had one of those amps as a reference point because there's only like, there's fewer than 10 now, I think, in the world. Um, no shit. Wow. And, and it yeah. really and does there are a lot it. of a lot of dumble-in-the-box pedals out there, but mm-hmm. you're right. If, if you're not referencing against uh, the real deal, it's, it's almost, it feels a little disingenuous to call it that. Even if you are copying a, a preamp circuit, component for component if you can get the schematic for that sure sure and, and, and there are some great tumble style pedals out there there's just not a lot of them that do this particular style and so the the clean drive you know or the steel string clean drive v2 is basically the same as the version one and we just condensed it to make it about a third smaller and we added a toggle switch on it to cut bass out and the reason why we did that is a lot of people had said in the version one, you know, because the dumbbells are really fat and have this big low end, but we didn't consider that if people have small combo amps or amps that are really bass heavy, by adding that much bass to it, that it actually becomes overwhelming. And so I added this jazz rock switch so that people who have bass heavy amps or small combos where they can tend to get really tubby in the low end, that it cuts the 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 uh, the bass out by about you know eight dB or so. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of uh, speaking of bass and 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 b- before we leave that really fast, I want to say I have played the heck out of that pedal. I've been able to be in a room with yeah truly wonderful players like Nathaniel Murphy, Isaiah Sharkey, both friends of the show. It sounds amazing. So if you haven't checked it out, folks, definitely got to do it. But speaking of uh, speaking of the old bass, I, I know that Dave wants to ask this, so I'll just ask it for him. Do All you right. have uh, do you make anything? Dave's let's, a bass player. Do you do you make anything? For yeah, the, for yeah. The, for the bass so, the, so, the, so the two pedals that I think work really effectively on bass the, is the the Vertex Boost is the first one. Okay, and, and that works great on bass because it does two things. First of all, you can use it as a, as a level compensation between active and passive pickups without any coloration to the tone. Nice. The other thing that you can use it for is you can put your volume pedal or an expression pedal to use as your volume pedal in the expression loop, and it removes okay. all of the impedance issues that are caused by using passive uh, volume pedals in in mm-hmm. in the signal path of your bass. So you don't have any issue there in terms of getting any tone suck or any degradation as a result of using a volume pedal in your signal path, which it seems like these days more and more often we are seeing bass players that are using volume pedals on their pedal boards. So it's a valuable, valuable asset to any rig. And then also the Vertex Boost has a really linear transparent buffer in it. And so if you're using that in in the front of your bass rig, you can have a really steady impedance to uh, all of the, the pedals in your signal path. Okay. So that's one. What's the uh, yeah? What's and the, the other, other one is the ready. dynamic distortion. 
Oh yeah, I love that pedal. I've actually used that in uh, I've used that in a CME demo myself. Yeah, so the the dynamic distortion is really cool. It, it it sort of has some of the features, although it's not a rat circuit. It has some of the 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 features of a rat, but it has the low end uh, capabilities to be able to still capture a bass without just sounding like complete garbage. Um, so (laughs) that's a a hard thing to pin down actually. Yeah. Yeah. So it it has this really, really amazing ability to handle low end. And, and, uh, a lot of guys that I know that uh, are bass players, uh, for whatever reason, it's only really caught on in the CCM community as far as bass players are concerned, but I would just love to get it like in somebody's hands that's like not doing that so that there could be a little <laughs> bit more diversity uh, of usages. I mean, certainly it can be cool in, in that context and a lot of guys like it because it ha- the, the, the tone control on it can really help the bass cut a lot more if you need, yep. you know, to have like a, a baseline. Actually, and I should also say in, 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 in gospel music, a lot of guys like it too. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. But uh, yeah, it's a great pedal on bass, but totally sort of like a sleeper. Like nobody really knows about it for a bass uh, idea. So, you know, maybe, That's awesome. maybe you need to go over to CME and just even see if it's in your wheelhouse, you know? Yeah. I'm definitely going to try that out. That's yeah. Cool. It's, I'm glad you brought that one up too. I actually just last night checked out the new premier guitar rig rundown for a player that I wasn't familiar with. Uh, Allie Venable is her name. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. A blues, a blues player from down in Texas, and she actually has that on her board. Uh, oh yeah, using it for uh, for yeah. distortion sounds. Yeah, she's great. She uh, she's one of the disciples of of Lance Lopez, who's like an old you know blues guy that's that's you know kind of like that came after the Stevie Ray generation, but is an incredible incredible blues player and and he was sort of her mentor for you know the last maybe five five plus years in in texas and so she's she i think that she'll uh she'll have a a a good career in blues i hope she's a really nice lady and and uh and lance is an incredible teacher excellent we did get a listener question for you okay this comes Ooh. from our, our good buddy stingray and he was very curious to learn about I, I believe it might be discontinued now but he wanted to know about the um the battery box oh, okay <laughs> uh, that that you that you were selling sort of like yeah, yeah. what was the genesis of that yeah and, and maybe if you could speak to any kind of like the science or the tone differences that you okay. might have okay. uh, had with that thing. All right. So the battery power supply, I, I should preface it, 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 is only of value if you are willing to use carbon batteries. So those are the cheap, undesirable batteries that you would get at like a dollar store or something like that. <laughs> not, wow. not, not alkaline really? batteries. No. Whoa. No, no alkaline batteries. So you wouldn't want to use a Duracell or an Energizer. These are like the... The weird brands like Sunbeam, EverReady, uh, yeah. you know, stuff like that. So, and for th- people, really quick, for people who don't know, this box is basically what is it four? Uh, yeah, you can throw four nine volt batteries in there, and essentially just use it like you'd use, say, like a Voodoo Lab or something like that, where you run yeah. The, yeah. The, the plugs out from it. But it's it's being powered by actual nine volt batteries in a box rather than plugged into the wall. Yeah, the it looks it looks from the outside exactly like a normal like a small, one of the small size Voodoo Lab power supplies that has like four outputs on it. You know, oh, it looks, okay. like, looks like that from the outside. But it has this thumb screw on the top where when you pull it off, you know, like like uh, Dr. Bianco said, it, it has uh, <laughs> it has four... <laughs> We're just going to have this I'm conversation. I'm going to start calling you that, man. Yeah. Doc, doctor to doctor. 
um, where it has four uh, nine volt batteries that that fit inside of it. And the circuit board is cut out so it fits a nine volt battery perfectly in there. You know, so there's not any any movement. And and then they each have their own individual output. So each battery is its own output. And then there's a fifth uh, power jack on that battery supply, which is an input. So you can get a feed from your main power supply which tells the batteries when to turn on and off, you know, so you don't have to unplug any of the pedals that are being fed by the battery in order to preserve it. When nice. you unplug your rig, it, it completely turns everything off. There's some relays in there that, that tell the batteries not to, to continue uh, providing uh, voltage and current to the, the pedals that are hooked up to them. But the way this came about is that that studio musician that I mentioned to you, Michael Landau, had had this rack built by Robert Bradshaw in the 90s, and it had this feature in it where he could run his overdrive and distortion devices off of 9-volt batteries, and it was sort of a more primitive version of what I built. It just had kind of like the batteries were fully exposed, you know, and didn't have any covering, which in a rack probably isn't so important. And I don't think it had any sort of relay feed in it so that you couldn't like, you couldn't just shut it off by unplugging the power. You had to have like physically turn it off. Like I had like a little on off switch. Um, and, and so he just said, Hey, can you build me this thing? You know, Bob had built this for me 10 years ago or whenever it was. And, and, and I'd really like something like that's a pedal board format. And so that's kind of how it came about. Now I used to just build them in normal, like Hammond boxes, mm -hmm. um, but then I eventually moved that into a, a physical product, and we only made a thousand of them. And I discontinued them because after kind of we reached the 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 core group of guys that were really into that sound, they were pretty slow to sell. And then there's been like this huge resurgence now that they're not available, where people email us every week and dealers ask us if we would bring them back. Um, but I don't know if I'll do it or not. It's, it's tough because there's not a lot of margin in p products that are that cheap. I sold them at $99 oh, and okay. I, and I think that it, I think it costs maybe almost 50 bucks to make them. So I think if I were going to make them again, you know, and again, this is considering that you're cutting in a dealer at 30%. I think the dealers made more money than I did on, on selling these things. Yeah. So I think if I ever did it again, I would probably figure out a system to have it made overseas so that I could keep the price point lower than $99. Because I think that that was also a barrier for some people that were like, I don't know if this whole battery thing is right. really a thing. You know, dropping a hundred dollars and then just being able to buy a five output Voodoo Lab for ten or fifteen dollars more—it was a hard gap to bridge. You know, but getting to your question about the tone, it it, it does sound different depending on the device. So most vintage style devices, tube screamers, fuzz faces, wah pedals. These are all designed during an era where there were no power supplies. The power source was battery. So they were optimized for that purpose. And a lot of companies that build vintage correct replications of a lot of these devices will still maintain whatever sort of filtering was on the original pedal. They don't do any special power supply filtering for the pedal. So on many pedals, it will be significantly quieter on a battery as opposed to a supply because there isn't any filtering on it. It will also be sensitive to the source impedance. And so having a high impedance power source like a carbon battery 
paired with your high impedance fuzz face, for example, will make it sound much different than it would if it was powered through a constant current source. And so the thing you need wow. to visualize on a battery, a carbon one this only applies to, is that there is a constant fluctuation of voltage and current while it's being used. So if you were to put a, a measuring tool on a battery that's inside of a fuzz face, for example, and you were to hit it really hard with a power cord, you would see the voltage would drop temporarily and the current draw would jump. And so you would you would see these two things happen, you know, simultaneously, and then it would regenerate back to some normal voltage, you know. So it might be 9.6, you hit a hard power cord, it drops, you know, a, a certain number of decimals mm -hmm. of voltage, even maybe a full volt, depending on, you know, what it is. And then you'll see it regenerate. And the people will say, oh, I don't need that battery thing because I got a SAG control on my Voodoo Lab. Well, Voodoo Lab and any of the battery emulators, they only do a static voltage, right? So you can only just decide, I want to keep it at six volts all the time. But that's not how carbon batteries work. They're dynamic with what's, getting, uh, what's being put in on the input. So the harder you hit a carbon battery and a pedal that's sensitive to it, like a fuzz, you'll see the voltage jumping around. It will, it will dip and then regenerate, dip and regenerate. And also at the same time, it's decaying from the moment that it's being used. So if you look at a, a curve of a, of a uh, battery that's, that's uh, carbon, the, the graph just has a downward slope from beginning to end. You know, it starts at 9.6 or so, and it's immediately dying from the moment that's being used. So the regeneration point only goes back to the point of the amount of voltage that it actually has left to produce. Whereas a alkaline battery is actually more like a power supply. It's linear for most of its life. It'll stay, you know, 9, 9.6 volts. It just is a straight line straight across, and then it just dies suddenly. So, so that's why, you know, I'm saying that there's no real benefit of, of an alkaline battery. It pretty much will look like a, a, a constant uh, current and voltage source, just like a power supply. And power supplies that have variable voltages in them to emulate batteries, they only account for one half of the, of the issue, which is voltage, and they don't move it around. It stays at a constant. You know, it's always six volts. It doesn't drop depending on how hard you hit the input. And there's no current restriction or current limiting that's happening in those. So you can really only do it with a real carbon battery. You can't emulate, or at least there's nobody at this point that I've seen that builds a emulator of a battery that actually works in that way. Dude, you just, you just blew my fucking mind. You just blew that. Dr. That Henry's was... mind. <laughs> That is amazing. That that totally took me to a place I'd never been before. So, but again, don't awesome. do, don't do it on like your you know your digital effects or your high current right, devices. Right. It's it's really like overdrives, distortions, wah, fuzz. Like that's where it will make more of a difference. You know, and there's no, going to be some that aren't going to make any difference. You know, because they they've got the power supply so filtered. You know that that. You know, but if you cut a power supply cap on one of those pedals, then you might start to really notice a difference. You know, it's 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 really extra interesting to me. I think our listeners know at this point one of my sort of cornerstone favorite pedals on planet Earth, always on one of my pedal boards. I now have an original is there the is. harmonic percolator. Yeah, baby. And and now I'm super because I've tried I've tried just regular old batteries. I've tried running it off a of power supply. Now I'm going to go buy some real cheap batteries. I know I have the, so many emails to write to my guitar ones. playing friends. 
And I'm we have gonna, a, we have actually have a out. video that shows it. So I have a video called okay. like the the I think it's called like the original isolated power supply because batteries are the most isolated, even more isolated than an isolated power supply, right? Because the whole entire supply is within the cell, you know, itself. Um, and I do these A/B tests where I set up all like the classic pedals: Tube Screamer, Fuzz Face, Waz. And I, I made an AB switcher that switches them in real time between the power supply and the carbon battery. And you can literally hear in, in real time how it changes. Amazing. I'm yeah. going to watch that. Everyone yeah. should watch that. Yeah. I, I know I know we've we've gone through a lot here. I still have a couple other things I want to ask you because yeah, yeah. there's just there's just so much goodness so going much. on right I, now. I have I have as much time as, as you have. Oh, I love it. So um, I think, you know, one of the sort of main things that I still want to ask you is about, obviously, right now, there's a lot of shit going on in the world. Yeah. We've got the coronavirus going on. I guess, you know, from your perspective as as a builder, as someone making products that people need to handle and in, in, in their physical things, like what sort of how is that how, how is that directly impacting you right now? And, and also kind of like. Are there any extra precautions or anything like that that you've been thinking about in the way that you're making things, shipping, handling things that are going to be going out to people right now? Yeah. Um, so the the first part of your question there was 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 what I I got the last part about about how we am kind of changing things to kind yeah. of address this and then how is the COVID I guess how affecting? is it impacting you? Okay. Yeah, like as a builder, you know, working with retailers or selling direct. Okay. Yeah, what yeah. does that kind of look like? Yeah. So the the effects for us and and I kind of feel uh, I feel guilty for saying this it, there hasn't been a lot of impact on us comparatively to a lot of our colleagues and 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 the only reason why is that we just happen to choose a contract manufacturer that does mostly military contracts and so they are considered essential business. Mm. So they have, oh, so they wow. have so they have remained open. Um, however, the the warehouse facility side of it is impacted of that because those those employees that they have are 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 not considered essential, and so they are only allowed to have the number of people in there that maintain six feet of of distance between them, and so. As far as sort of first wave impacts for us, we haven't had any ability or we haven't had any inability to produce products as a result of it. However, I think that companies that are not already affected uh, at this point in time, I think that the second wave effects are probably going to be more prominent. And so this is going to be supply chain related stuff. Mm -hmm. So maybe you were able to get through this point, you have enough to fulfill for you know up up through let's say mid-april or late april but then when you're out of parts and everybody else is out of parts too and you know maybe china's back online fully which is where whether we acknowledge it or not all of our passive components caps resistors potentiometers foot switches those are all being made overseas primarily Mm -hmm. in china and taiwan um a lot of those products we're not going to be able to get you know, or 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 it's going to be much more difficult to get products that we, you know, in materials that we normally would get, um, and so I think that that's where it's it's you're going to see probably more impact um, for people who are not already experiencing some difficulty and frustration. It, it's gonna it's gonna be supply chain 
delays that will prevent them from being able to to get income. Um, and and so you know there there is a certain expectation of that uh, that we have looking ahead. You know, I, I don't presume that that uh, we'll have any semblance of normalcy any sooner than May. Um, and and it's also questionable to me the the degree to which the economy will or with the condition that the economy will be in at, at that point. Um, but you know, so far our online retailers are doing really really well. One thing that we did to to help all of our dealerships is we stopped selling direct completely, uh, which is oh, something that, we, wow. that that we've done uh, you know since we started Vertex. I've always sold direct as well. Um, but we discontinued that just to help vendors and dealers, or I should say dealers, be able to sell through their inventory um, mm-hmm. and really try to support them as best as we can. Because even the ones that have large online presence, you know, like like Chicago Music Exchange, they're still not able to operate their storefronts, you know, sure. and and there's a certain amount of business that that generates with with uh, any any you know retail business w- whether they you know do a mix of online and in store retail. Uh, so so you know the first option when you go to our website to our store is you know find a dealer near you and it's just like a basic you know like zip code based algorithm that tries to find you know you the closest dealer, uh, but also will give you a full list of our dealers and then gives you uh, a list of uh, of Amazon stores that our dealers have on Amazon and a list of Reverb stores that carry the products on Reverb. So uh, that's that's what we're trying to do to best support dealers in this time. Again, you know. I, I had because I went through that event with with the access wall and I and I literally almost went bankrupt doing it I was much more careful when I rebuilt my business about wow. how to how to create reserves how to how to um, be able to budget and so at this point in time we're we're okay I haven't had to lay anybody off or any do, do any sort of cutbacks and most of our guys, work from home two or three days a week. And so we didn't have to go through a whole logistical change in how we operate our business in order to be able to to adjust to not being able to be at the showroom, you know, because our showroom mm-hmm. was really just a place where we would congregate and where we would host artists and shoot videos and and stuff like that. Um, and so, you know, we're having to modify some of the ways that we would do that thing, that, those sort of things, but I already have a full, you know, kind of, camera suite at my house and and so we can still shoot videos in that regard for as far as uh enrichment and even product demos although you know i'm not as good as isaiah sharkey or anything like that but you know this is sort of uh you know in in the scope of how things could be going for individuals and people i am incredibly fortunate that uh that i've been able to go this far with with really very little to change Although I don't know, you know, the extent to which this will be able to continue, you know, or any of us will be able to none of us to, know, con- yeah. to continue. So, you know, I uh, I really um, I really empathize and and, and uh, for a lot of people in our industry or just you know around the world that are that are having to kind of invent new ways to to live their lives and to 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 generate income and and you know my my message that I've been sending to everybody is. You know, uh, you know that 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 pedals should should be low on your list of priorities right now, and and if you are you know in 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 the mood to buy a pedal for entertainment purposes and your budget you know allows that you know 
uh, I would definitely check in with the the manufacturer considering purchasing from and, and really ask them what's the best way to buy from them right now that keeps them most solvent, you know, and because uh, I think that, uh, you know, our, our, our methodology will look different than every other brand. And, and I think that, uh, you know, that the degree to which we can support uh, small pedal businesses that we want to we want to see on the other side of this, um, you know, being in touch with them in the way that can best help them, I think, is 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 great. And, uh, well, that's completely admirable. And I, and honestly, I, I didn't know that, that about the, the selling direct thing. And thank you for doing that. I think yeah. there are, that's really going to make a direct impact on a lot of these small, mostly mom and pop type of retailers that, that, you know, rely on, on your products for them to, to be able to stay afloat. So that's, yeah. I think the, ir- the, the, the irony is that people are buying stuff right now. I mean, people yeah. are definitely wanting stuff. You know? Yeah, yeah, they they are. You know, I mean, like CME is 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 doing well for us, and so is Sweetwater. But you know, they were they're two. Uh, I think of the exemplar dealers in in the in the world really about learning and knowing how to sell online. Mm-hmm. They have a huge advantage. You know, a lot of our other you know guitar stores that are in you know Tuscaloosa, you know, that maybe had a modest reverb store or something like sure. that. I, 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 I can't I can't see how this is 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 gonna be possible for them unless they have you know just a, a tremendous amount of funding and you, you did mention early on about some of the small business um, relief stuff and uh, I think that that's that's critically important for for uh, for all businesses to to apply for whether they feel like they need it or not because there's there's such a question mark on on what's next you know yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I think let's uh, let's finish up with some tone tips. I know that the last time we had the, our uh, our sort of uh, never to be heard uh, in- interview, you, <laughs> the you did you did fill us in, exactly. You did fill us in on some some tone tips. Um, I th- you know you can get, make as many as you want. I'm sure we could do this all day. You've made a living doing it, but uh, it maybe provide like three tone tips, some things that you've learned from all the rigs that you've built for so many amazing players across right. the, the world and some things that you, you see maybe people doing wrong that they could easily fix themselves or things that they might want to think about when they're kind of putting together their own rig and, and yeah. trying to optimize the tones yeah. that they can get out of it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, and if there's any that I said before that, that you remember that you think I should say, I will, I will recap those, but, uh, let's, let's... I think buffer buffer is the only one uh, that I can okay, think of. Okay. So let's start there. So, so a a buffer is not a buffer is the first thing we should say <laughs> not not all oh, wow. not all buffers that, that blew my mind i have so many emails to write to my yeah. guitar playing friends yeah not all buffers are created equal and in fact most are are very inferior and in the the methodology that that i've seen manufacturers use in in creating buffers that they add into their product line is like this sort of logic I like a clon. The clon has a buffer. That means that if I take the buffer out of a clon, that that'll make a great buffer. And the reality is, is that that is a complete fallacy. Like the the clon is a great overdrive pedal. The fact that it has a buffer doesn't make it any more or less a a, a good buffer. The, The definition of a buffer is that no matter what comes after it, that it is going to sound the same on the uh, as it did when it came in. There's not going to be any coloration. There's not going to be any distortion. It is a one-to-one amplifier. And 
there are so few pedals out there that actually do this. Even standalone buffers, most of them do not do this. So here's an easy criteria that I think that you that any person could go to come to the table with and they could be pretty safe that they're gonna get something good. So you need a dual buffer is the first thing. It needs to have an input buffer. So the first thing the guitar hits is a buffer, unless you have like a fuzz face or some impedance sensitive thing. Nine times out of 10, this will be right. You wanna hit a buffer with your guitar first thing you hit. And you also wanna have a buffer as the very last thing that the pedal board hits before it goes back to the amplifier. This is creating basically an impedance firewall for the pedal board. So the guitar is isolated from the pedal board by way of the input buffer, and the pedal board is isolated from the amplifier by way of the output buffer. Now, so that's the first thing, two buffers, one on the input, one on the output, okay? And the next part of it is, is that it, that buffer should have an input impedance of one meg. This will be abbreviated typically in specifications as the number one with an M next to it, one meg. Mm -hmm. The output impedance of that buffer needs to be somewhere between 80 ohms and 150 ohms. A lot of times you'll see a K next to it, so like 80K or that's wrong. It needs to be 80 or 100 <laughs> ohms, no Ks. Um, and so that's the next thing you need to look for. And if it doesn't meet that criteria or those specifications are not published, that would be like saying, we're designing a car for safety, yet we're not gonna publish the safety crash test ratings of the vehicle. It would be like the same thing if they weren't doing that. So a lot of manufacturers who build buffers don't publish them because they either don't know that that's the mark that they should actually be hitting, or they're not hitting that mark and they don't want you to know. Um, so I, I would say you need to look for those specifications in the buffers that you choose. A couple of really good ones that I know, and there's very few. The Mesa Boogie High Wire is a dual buffer that meets that criteria. The other one is made by TC Electronic and it's called the Bonafide Buffer and it's the budget friendly one. It's like $69, yeah. but you TC's have to buy legit. two of them. You have to buy two of them because it's only a, a single buffer. So you'd have to buy one and put it in the beginning and one at the end. A boss pedal is not a quality buffer. It is not stable to drive any sort of long lines. And also oh, most people- really? Yeah, and most people <laughs> don't realize that when boss pedals are buffered, it's not just like there's one buffer in them. Most boss pedals have like two or three buffers in them. And so you're getting this cascading effect. In boss pedals, if you put like four or five of them in line, you'll, actually, sure. you'll actually lower your, your volume. So you, it'll attenuate a few dB of your actual signal and it'll raise the noise floor at the same time because their buffers are not designed to be run with a bunch of other buffers and they're not designed to do it with any sort of signal fidelity or anything like that. So a boss pedal is not a buffer. If you're using that for your input and output buffer, you are compromising your tone compared to how it was sound plugged in. So that's buffers. A quick aside, I have lots of YouTube videos on this if you're really interested in going down the rabbit hole on buffers. The second thing is solder your cables or buy oh, solder cables. Oh, thank you. I was gonna this ask you big. to make that one of them. This is great. This, this is, is big right now. Yeah, so the, the biggest thing that people don't understand is sure, like there's gonna be guys that can have solderless cables and can get them to work. 
But it's always a compromise because no matter what solderless cable you buy, you're pretty much locked into whatever the cable is that that manufacturer provides that fits the plug. So you can't just say, well, you know, I think actually I want to use Mogami on this rig or I want to use Belden on this rig or I want to use Canary on this rig. You can't. You don't have that choice anymore because you have to use the cable that is provided by the manufacturer. The second thing is, is that most of the, in fact, every single solderless kit whether it's the most expensive boutique one you can think of or a cheap one that, that uh, you can buy on Amazon, none of them are gas-tight connections. That means that the, the cable is not encapsulated in solder to prevent any sort of oxidation from occurring. So your connection point is automatically going to be susceptible to oxidation. And almost every cable that I'm aware of is made of copper. Copper is one of the most corrosive metals that is known to man. So you're exposing it to the elements. You also have it in a high vibration environment on a stage or in a studio. You got drums next to it. And you have a mechanical connection and a screw holding your cable together and getting the ground connection or the center conductor connection. And the screw is just slowly backing out from the point with which it's assembled. So you really don't, this is why you don't see any pro-level rig builders using solderless cables. And if you have seen anybody that you think is pro that's using solderless cables, I, I can guarantee you that that they are, are not following the standard with which has been established since the early 80s around cable assemblies. It's just, solderless is not used as a standard for professional grade rigs. So I would highly recommend I can recommend think of you one popular YouTube channel, but I will not name any names. <laughs> no, yeah. man, do it. <laughs> All right. That we've, got, we've got buffers. We've got solder. You got uh, one more for uh, us? One more. Um, yeah qualify the pedals that are going to be on your pedal board in the context that they're going to be used. Because a lot of us, and I found this a lot in building rigs, is guys will develop their pedal boards piecemeal. So they buy one pedal at a time and they evaluate the pedal in isolation, guitar into it and then into the amp. But they don't actually listen to what it sounds like when it's in combination with the 10 other effects that they're going to be putting on their board. And so some pedals will work great independently, but then you put them with other stuff and they're not good anymore. Maybe they don't like the impedance of the pedal that's following them or the pedal that's driving them. There's all these different things that, that prevent devices from sounding optimally when they're in, in tandem with other effects. So I would say when you're going through and you're starting to qualify the pedals that you're gonna put on your rig, you really wanna spend a lot of time to use them exactly how you're gonna use them or you intend to use them on your rig so that you can truly vet them in the context that they're gonna be used in, in the system and not individually because that's not how they're actually gonna mm -hmm. be used. And pedals will vary depending on their input and output impedance that's before or after them. And they can develop sensitivities that you weren't aware of when you're using them in the actual context that they're going to be. So I would say, you know, qualify all those pedals, not just by themselves, but how they're actually going to be used. Dude, that is, that's really excellent advice. And yeah. <clears throat> I, I, it brings to mind the analogy of mixing a record. You can, you know, craft this amazing guitar tone and it sounds super badass and beefy, but then <laughs> when you actually put it in the mix and you, and you unsolo it and you listen to it in context, it sounds like shit. And, yeah, man. And, just, and so <laughs> appetite so for destruction like, is, is, is it, appetite for destruction is a key uh, example of that. If you listen to Slash's guitar tone on that in isolation, uh, it's awful. 
but in the context, uh, sounds great. Yeah, it's just like I mean, and and that happens a lot if you if you able if you're able to get your hands on any famous old stems from records, you'll listen to like a Randy Rhodes guitar tone or something. It's like wow, that is so sharp and biting, or it's like a slash tone's real honky mid range or something. And it's like that doesn't sound cool, but then when you hear it with bass and with cymbals on top of it and vocals also right. taking up that same mid range, it's like oh shit, that's what it's supposed to sound like. Yeah, you do the same thing for your pedals, folks. Yep. Just nothing but 2K. Just, just crazy. Just push that boxy 2K right there. Wow, dude, Mason, that was—I mean, that was yeah. so amazing. Thank you so much for for your candor and everything that you've shared and all your wisdom. Um, you know, obviously, Vertex Effects. Where can where can folks uh, find your stuff online? Where can they check out more of what you do and, and put out there in the world? For the guitar pedal stuff. You can go to our website, which is vertexeffects.com. And then we're also on all the standard social media platforms at Vertex Effects on Instagram and on uh, Facebook. And then if you want more of the pedal board tutorials and enrichment stuff, you can go to our YouTube channel, which is you know, youtube.com backslash Vertex Effects Inc. That's Inc. like I-N-C, like incorporated. I guess there's another Vertex Effects out there, so I had to add the INC to get that for YouTube. But uh, there's a lot of uh, really great tutorials on there showing you how to build everything from custom pedal board interfaces to, you know, building your own cables, DC power cables, patch cables, everything A to Z on on how to build rigs. And we usually publish something new at least every week. And uh, so those are all good places to to find sort of the the litany of of things that we produce from pedals to content. Boom. Sir, you are a gentleman and a scholar. Thank you so much for joining us. That was absolutely amazing. It was my pleasure. It was my pleasure.